This evening I'd like to bring to you a message that is a compression of a little series that I preached in my church over a year ago. Uh, I'm sure you folks get snippets of news from America. Every four years we have a presidential election, the congressional elections alternating in two-year cycles, so every two years we have some kind of election, and all the news and all the discussions and Well, if you're paying attention and you care really anymore, it can become a distressing time. And as I was listening to some particular stories I'll not get into, but in the news, it just, the echo of a phrase, if you have that experience, I'm sure you do as the Lord's children, very often there'll just be even a phrase of Scripture that will lodge in your heart and be brought to mind, but one that has lodged in my heart and mind for many years is a phrase in the midst here of verse 14 where we read truth is fallen in the street. And it's on that theme of truth that I want to speak to you this evening and as I said I preached a series among our people. But the closing words of what we read this evening are worthy of thought as we come to approach the subject Because what Isaiah describes here, and if you're familiar with the Scriptures, you will have noticed that in the middle of the reading that we read, there are several phrases that the Apostle Paul makes use of in a very important place in the book of Romans as he begins to argue and describe the condition of fallen man and his depravity. We read of these that uh, have known not the way of peace. There's no judgment in their goings. The way of peace they've not known. It is a description of a wicked people. And we come to that middle phrase in verse 15 that we read and concluded with, even such a time as the ones that depart from evil, he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. We could think of that and maybe you've had the experience I had in my youth. I remember reading Old Testament passages that describe conditions of such ungodliness such evil, such times of things being upside down that I thought, well, we'll never get there. Well, I haven't lived an exorbitantly long life yet. It's more years than I like to remember at times. But I've lived to see that we've gotten there. There was a news story some months ago now in our nation. It was a young girl in high school who was expelled from school. And the crime, the transgression that she had committed was this. She was sitting in class before class started, having a private conversation with a friend, and just noted again privately and quietly to her friend that she was uncomfortable with the biological male student that was accompanying them in the ladies' showers. The teacher overheard this private conversation. The girl was called to the authorities in the school. She was charged with hate speech, and she was expelled. It's okay for the guy to go into the girl's showers. That's no problem. But for a girl to say that makes her uncomfortable, not on a placard, not in a protest, not before a news camera, privately to a friend, 
No, that can't be accepted. You might even say the one that departs from evil maketh himself a prey. Well, I'm not here to preach on what are the many sins and perversions of our culture today. But it is to say that the phrase, truth is fallen in the street, is certainly applicable to our times, as well as the days in which Isaiah wrote. And what I want to do this evening, I want to take this first text from Isaiah 14, that phrase, truth is fallen in the streets, but then I want to turn up several other key texts of Scripture that use the, the word truth. And so if you think with me firstly from here in Isaiah, I want to speak for a moment on the thought of abandoning truth. Isaiah is writing to and of the people of Israel. They were a people that above all people in their days were blessed. After Paul and Romans, again, you've seen me go back to Romans a lot today. I've been studying and preaching Romans for several months in my church now. But when he begins to describe uh, people that are in their ungodliness, when he speaks of people that are depraved and cut off from God as he begins to unfold then from chapter 1 the condition of the Gentiles and their suppression of truth but then but what about the Jews and and then in chapter 2 he begins to underscore the fact that Israel is ungodly that Jews are lost and without hope if they don't have Christ as well And so he comes to address a a natural question. What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? And he says, much every way. Chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Jews and Gentiles alike are sinful and depraved and in need of grace. But in the case of the Jews, well, it was true for both. The the Gentiles were sinning against light. The creation shows the glory of God, Uh, His handiworks. Day unto day utters speech, night unto night shows knowledge. And His eternal power and Godhead, Paul says, are revealed even in the heavens so that those that don't even have a Bible are without excuse. But the Jews have had more than the stars. They've They've had more than just the speaking voice of conscience and God's law written in the heart. The oracles of God, the scriptures were given to them. They were recipients of revelation. They were sinning against greater light. And I remember as a teenager, I was reading through my Bible, getting to some of those parts of the Bible that wasn't too sure I'd ever read before. So I'm reading through the Minor Prophets. And I came to the prophecy of Amos, and I came upon a portion that really arrested my attention. Amos says, we'll not turn it up, but he said these words, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, this is God speaking through the prophet, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirsting for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
They shall wander from north to south, from east even to west, to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Now, I was a young guy, pretty much with Arminian thinking in my understanding of the gospel and my weak understanding. And that really got my attention. You're saying, Lord, that there are going to be people that are seeking your word and you're not going to let them find it. That just didn't jive with my theology. How can that be? So I just went back to Amos 1 and I read Amos again. And then I went back to Amos 1 and I read Amos again. I read Amos a lot. And if you read the prophet Amos, and it's true elsewhere, I mean, Paul, just as we quoted Romans, highlights the theme. But the problem in the situation was that faced Amos in his day is that Israel had the word of God and they didn't want it. He said, I I raised up a few sons for prophets. You commanded the prophets to prophesy not. When Amos was sent with God's word... (laughs) To preach to them, they called him up on charges, brought him to the king and said, here's this guy, the land isn't able to bear all his words, shut him up. And there's a phrase in Amos that really is one of the strongest statements in all of the Old Testament with regard to God's election and his choice and his grace to the nation of Israel. He said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean God was ignorant there were other countries. The word no in the Old Testament has a breadth of meaning. It has a special acknowledgement. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. It's just really an underscoring of what Paul said there in Romans. What advantage hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? All the things that were revealed to them? Much every way, because unto them were committed the oracles, the word of God. And what God was saying in that prediction of the famine of the word is here you're a people that have shown yourselves disinterested. You're pushing off the word that you've been given. You don't want to hear from me. And so I'm going to bring such a famine upon you. And of course, Amos prophesies of judgment, even of the captivity of the kingdom. You see, there comes a point in time, and here really what we're speaking of in our first key text is apostasy. Of turning away from truth, of sinning against light, abandoning truth, and truth falls in the street. We've reached days in which what is truth? We're coming to another text with that theme. People talk about your truth, my truth. It works for you, that's great. It doesn't work for me, I'll do something else. Truth 
fallen in the streets. Fearful. The circumstances that follow such an abandonment of truth are terrifying indeed. And we don't have to read history books, as it were. We read the daily news and see the terrifying results of a society and a culture where truth is abandoned, where truth is fallen in the streets. Well, let me ask you to turn with me to the New Testament Scriptures, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 18. I want to break into the chapter, but to set the context, this is John's record of Christ's appearance before Pilate the day of his crucifixion. And we'll read here, uh, we'll break in to read from verse 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus. Let me just pause, it's interesting. The Jewish chief priests couldn't come into the judgment hall. That would defile them. So Pilate has to go into where Jesus is and the trial is taking place and then go out and speak to the accusers and come back in. They don't want to touch a Gentile floor or anything like that. Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this, of thy, this thing of thyself, or didst others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? I know nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou saidst that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? I have said to my own congregation on many occasions, different portions of Scripture. This is one of them. I would love to have been present or be a fly on the wall and to have heard the tone of voice that Pilate used when he asked that question. What is truth? I have a sneaking suspicion that he didn't ask it in sincerity, wanting the truth itself, truth incarnate, to speak with him and share truth with him. I don't know if he spoke it in disgust or anger. I somehow doubt that. My own impression is that Pilate spoke it perhaps with sarcasm or maybe optimistically, though Pilate was a sinful and lost man, maybe with a little bit of despair. What is truth? Pilate here is, well, he's a Roman governor in a troubled province where keeping the peace was paramount. The Jews were known to be a a hard group to keep in check. 
And here the chief priests are all stirred up. A riot is not far from perhaps being uh, present. How am I going to navigate through this? Don't want trouble. Don't want the news of that to get back to Rome. You know, it can be kind of comfortable down here. The climate's good and the accommodations are nice. I have all these soldiers and all this power. But here's Jesus. Here the jealous and we read elsewhere in all these discussions with the chief priests and Pilate. He knew that for envy they had delivered him. He knew that these are trumped up charges. He knew he has an innocent, godly man before him. You think even of the words of his trembling wife. She had suffered many things in a dream that night because of this Jesus. But you see here, we don't face as we did in our last key text, apostasy. Here in many ways, we're dealing with the fruit of apostasy and that's pragmatism. We just have to navigate through and find out what works for the moment. We can't have such a thing as objective truth. We can't stop and and consider the fact that we're all sinful creatures of a righteous God and come to terms with the truth. No, we're just all trying to get our piece of the action here and now and Pilate's piece was pretty good and he didn't want anything to mess that up. What's truth? What is truth? And I just wonder, in the days in which we are living, after truth has fallen in the streets, and pragmatism, and well, as it's described aptly in the book of Judges for such days, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There's no king in Israel. You translate it a little bit. Here we are today. There's no truth. Just laws that our nations have been privileged to live under and the peace and even prosperity that has followed such things is being abandoned. It's not even just sacred truth, religious truth that apostasy wants to abandon. It's any vestige of truth, any vestige of objective reality of right and wrong in God's created order. No, we have to get rid of God altogether. But you don't get rid of God and have things just float nicely along. That's not the way the world is. That's not reality. When truth is trampled underfoot in the street... And every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Guess what? Sinners sin against other sinners. The earth is filled as it was in Noah's day with violence. Isn't it interesting that when sin is left unchecked, 
Violence and death always follow. It's almost as if there were a created order. And we can't escape it. Though sinners try. Truth has fallen in the street. The abandonment of truth, apostasy. What is truth? Pragmatism of a world where there's no king. There's no right, there's no wrong. Just what do I need to navigate through this? Well, I want to ask you to turn perhaps just back one page in your Bible to John chapter 17. And I want to bring another key text before you with regard to truth. This we'll find and perhaps are aware is in the midst of what is often called the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And as he prays for his people, those that God has given him, there's a phrase we read in verse 17 of the 17th chapter, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Here I would like thirdly to put before you the thought of discerning truth. And while what we've looked at before with regard to apostasy and abandoning truth and pragmatism and negotiating truth, these are all circumstances that prevail among unbelievers, among the ungodly, and we can see in our times and say amen to the realities that are faced when truth's abandoned and truth is negotiable. But there's some texts that speak to us as believers with regard to truth. And our Lord here says, again, a key text, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And if we are to be then discerning of truth and living according to truth, we need to be sanctified by the word of God And here our key word would be wisdom. God's people always need wisdom. But I would say that that reality is heightened in such days as when truth has fallen in the streets. We're going to need wisdom to prevail. We're going to need to seek and find and exercise wisdom in our times. And the only place we're going to find it is in God's Word. And if we're to be sanctified by it, and we speak of sanctification often in that particularly doctrinal sense of the, the, the life of the Christian between the point of his conversion, his justification, and the point of either his, his death or ultimately for all the dead in Christ and those alive at the Lord's coming, glorification, that part of our pilgrim journey of sanctification where we grow in grace but that journey of sanctification includes growth in understanding as well as just godly living and lifestyle and we constantly need the understanding and the wisdom the discernment that would be given to us from the scriptures 
Now, we as believers can all agree to the sad conditions that prevail when the ungodly trample the truth underfoot in the street. But what about truth and ourselves? And here's where I could touch a hundred topics and much walk with care, but there are a lot of causes that we can be concerned about and can take up as Christians. And in many cases, these are worthy causes. And they are causes and topics and areas of life that every Christian should think and pray through. But there may be topics and causes that God's Word isn't clear enough that we all have to arrive at the same conclusion. I don't know how things are here in Canada. I'm sure very similar to in the States. I've been in the ministry a little while now. My wife and I celebrated our 40th anniversary, or we'll celebrate it in August, but we well, we won't celebrate in August as big as we just did the last week and a half. But most of those 40 years, 35 of them, 36 almost, we've been in the ministry. So I've, what do they say? It's not my first rodeo. Wow, I've never said the word rodeo in Calgary. You say stampede, is that right? Well, whatever. Um, not my first rodeo. There are a lot of topics that Christians get energetic about. And a lot of topics that we need to be engaged in. I'll give one example. Education. How do we educate our children? Well, can I write chapter and verse for you what you have to do? I mean, for a long season in our country as well as yours... Society had been God-centered, God-fearing. Even among those that weren't lost, they weren't evangelical Christians. There was a, a great body of truth and of morality that prevailed, and public schools were fine. You went to learn reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, kind of stuff that they used to do in school. Um, but then it got difficult. You know, not only culture changing and the lifestyle and the sins that were present in the lives of the unbelievers were getting worse and becoming more outward. And then you look at what's coming across the desk from the teachers, what's being taught. I mean, it's one thing to be learning your multiplication tables and next to Johnny over there and he's a bad kid and your kid's in class with him. But now what's the teacher saying? It's not two times two is four. Is that still right? I got to, anyway. It's, let's talk about some social things. Let's indoctrinate. And so we gotta, we got to fix this. We gotta, we gotta, the problem with our kids today is the schools. We've got to have Christian schools. So, boy, 1970s, every church has got to have a school. Your kids in public, your kids got to be in a Christian school. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're losing kids that grew up in Christian. Well, the Christian schools are what the problem is. We need to homeschool our kids. And if you don't homeschool your kid, you're in sin. And you've probably heard the conversations. My wife was engaged in such conversations. And I remember one day she came to me 
I do prepare my own sermons, but uh, she has great thoughts at times. As you know, honey, I've been thinking about this and talking to people, and of course, we're looking at our little girls, and what are we going to do with them? You think about some of the giants of Scripture. Moses, Samuel, Timothy. Moses, the courts of Pharaoh. Okay, that's pretty much public school. Samuel, weaned from his mother and taken to the tabernacle and raised in God's house. Okay, that's Christian school. Timothy, Paul spoke of the the faith and the gospel that he'd learned from his mother and his grandmother, that heritage. Timothy might even have been a homeschool guy. Which parents were sinful and wicked? So you mean I can't say to the other person that they're wrong if they do one of the other options? Now, I'm accountable to God to seek Him and His will and help for me and what I do with my child. But how am I going to interact with another Christian that didn't reach the same conclusion? Now, you can add to those lists. I'm old enough to remember Shackley Vitamins. And it seemed every evangelical church was the big marketplace for that. You've got to have a Shackley distributor in your church and telling people that's how God wants you to take care of your body. And take that a diff- hundred different directions. And I'm not opposed, again, to opinions. Politics. I have some seriously strong political ideas. I mean, I'm a conservative Southern American. But politics isn't going to save us. In all times, in any times, we need wisdom. We need to be sanctified through the truth. And it, it's sad at times that there, there are areas of secondary and even third level or fourth level importance that can get in the driver's seat for us as Christians. And yet, which of these hills is the one to die on? Which of these hills is going to be a real testimony to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Again, I'm not saying we can't have opinions on secondary things. But with what heart do we embrace those opinions? How do we communicate those opinions to others, whether in the world or among ourselves as God's people? We need discernment. We need wisdom. We need to be sanctified through the truth, and God's Word is truth. And so I need some real clarity from God's Word before I can stand on an issue and say this is the only way to look at this. I'm laboring this one a little long. I'm struggling for the clock. Here I can, I'll find a clock. Wow. Um, Let me just leave this one with this thought. This is something that was impressed on my heart many years ago. 
Ask yourself at times this question. Humbly, seriously, pause and ask yourself this question. When I enter a room, what is the first thing that comes to people's mind when they think of me? Now, there may be a lot of different issues and topics, again, that I have opinions about. And I may even live a life in which those people might know what those opinions are. But have I handled myself in such a way? Have I given preeminence in such a way to the gospel, to the clear, central, simple truths of Scripture, that it is the gospel? It is a humble walk with Christ that is the first thing that comes to mind when I come in the room. Because if there's anything else that's going to pop into their minds first when they think about me, anything other than the truth of the gospel, of being sanctified according to Scripture, and I need to really think and work on that. Discerning truth. We need wisdom. But let me ask you now to turn with me back to the Old Testament Scriptures, to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. I brought this message and a summary of the series I did in my church to a few churches in Northern Ireland during the weeknights of the week of prayer. And on more than one occasion, I had the minister come to me and supply another verse with regard to truth that wasn't in my list. And I said, well, brother, actually in my series at home, I had a couple more than are on my list. So these are just some key texts that I wanted to bring together. But Jeremiah 9 and verse 3, there's another little phrase that has always lodged in my heart in reading through the Scriptures. Jeremiah says, if you read from verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Let me just pause. Jeremiah has been called and is known as the weeping prophet. And here's the weeping prophet that is crying out to God and said, Lord, I need more tears. I need to weep when I'm not. And I wonder how true that is of us. I think of it even with regard to our world. I was reading a minister several years ago, a periodical that he put out and wasn't one of our men, it was a, a different group and too much. I agree with a lot of the things he said about our culture, about the condition of the church in particular. He was an expert at pointing out the weakness of the American church, to be sure. But I was smitten with the thought, this guy was gifted in sarcasm, and I enjoy sarcasm, and I'm actually pretty good at it. I have to that's part of my sanctification. I have to put a lid on that. Now, the Scripture at times uses sarcasm. There were places in the prophets where they were sarcastic with the 
men that opposed them and the false prophets. But I remember being smitten with the thought, looking at a corrupt, decaying culture. When Jesus, that last visit to Jerusalem, crested the Mount of Olives, he didn't crack jokes about Jerusalem. He wept over it. And I wonder how much we should learn from that in our approach to our world. Even in seasons such as this particular month of pride. I was smitten thinking of it this morning. Paul, in that first chapter of Romans, where he even goes through some of the awful catalog of the depths of moral sin and perversion. How did Paul approach his ministry to the Gentiles and to the Jews? He said, I'm a debtor. Here is a redeemed sinner looking at the needs of corrupt, wicked sinners. And he didn't from some lofty higher position look down on them in anger. He said, I'm a debtor to these people. I owe it to them to speak to them of the grace that I have received and offer the same gospel to them. It'll be an interesting check on not compromising truth, not putting our light under a bushel, not turning a blind eye to perversion and sin, but of how we approach the sinners. I've wandered from the topic, but here is Jeremiah asking for tears. But he said, verse 2, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men that I might leave my people and go from them. Man, here's a struggling minister. For they be all adulterers in an assembly of treacherous men. Lord, release me. I went out of the ministry. Jeremiah had those complaints we read elsewhere. But what does he say? They bend their tongues like their bow for lies. They work, they give their tongues as it were a workout for the spreading of their lies. Look at the exercise that the news pundits and the politicians and the false teachers and the guy in the street do in bending their tongue like their bow for lies. People believing, promoting lies. They bend their tongue like their bow for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. Bunyan took up that phrase, valiant for truth. It's a verse that jumped out at me because well, again, I might uh, display a little bit of my age, but I grew up in a 1965 Plymouth Valiant. Three on the tree. I just lost 90% of you. <laughs> um, three speed on the column. Valiant. It was an early vocab word. Dad, what does valiant mean? Well, 
It meant a six-cylinder Plymouth, but it meant strong, zealous, bold, courageous, valiant for truth. And here I would submit to you our need to be those that are defending Checking our hearts and coming in humility as we seek the wisdom of our last text and being sanctified by God's Word alone, not extrapolated opinions of our own, but defending truth and here with faithfulness and zeal. We have need then in our day of such Jeremiah lamented there weren't enough in his time. They were valiant, bold for other things, bold for lies, not bold for truth. We need to be bold for truth. And I close with some thoughts from another prophet, that of the prophet Daniel. Not a key text with truth in it from his prophecy, but an example of Daniel and his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We read their story in Daniel's book. I've been taken with that book in recent years. These are men for whom, I mean, we look at the church of our day. We don't have in Calgary or Winston-Salem or Greenville or Vancouver or Toronto A vast percentage of our society gathered in churches hearing the Word of God, zealous to have ministers in for let's meet every night all week. Let's meet for two weeks and and sing hymns and and hear preaching. Wow. What kind of times were those? Daniel and his companions didn't live in a day of a weak church. They lived in a day where the church was gone. The church had so given itself over to sin and compromise and apostasy that God judged it. The ten tribes are gone. The southern kingdom of Judah has been taken into captivity. There's no temple. There's no Feast of Tabernacles. There's no Day of Atonement. There's no singing of the Psalms of Ascent as they travel to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feasts. There's no gathering at the house of God to see the morning and evening sacrifice. All they knew of church was what they heard. They're serving in the courts of pagan kings. I think it's interesting the lessons we can learn from how they conducted themselves there. They served honorably. They, as Jeremiah was encouraged to pray, prayed for the peace of that city to which they'd been taken captive. They weren't troublemakers. In fact, in chapter 1 where they understand that they're not going to be able to take of some of the provision for all these eunuchs from the other kingdoms and their own that were provided, that portion of the king's meat. But they call their superiors to them and say, look, we, we have an issue here. This part of all this is okay, but this part, 
for testimony and for our God's word, we, we can't partake. We're not trying to get you in trouble, but we just want to let you know how it stands. And he says, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Let's test this for a week or 10 days or so, and we'll, we'll see. And, of course, God blessed, and their countenance was better than the others. He said, great. And I think about Melzar and his underlings. Wow, we can take all that stuff home with us then. A little extra. They weren't trying to just stick it in their eye. But then there were lines that they wouldn't cross. In this case, they were blessed when they said, here's a line we can't cross. In chapter 2, they were cast into a fiery furnace for standing up and saying, here's a line we can't cross. But they were defending truth. They were valiant truth and I think of that part of the story Daniel and his companions really some of the bravest words in the Bible they're singled out these guys didn't bow when they were supposed to they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar he looks at them very seriously you need to do this and they said King, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us out of your hand. He's able to deliver us out of the fiery furnace. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar's standing there. <laughs> right. Aren't all these my guys? These are my soldiers and the three of you guys. The God we serve is able. But if not, If he doesn't deliver us and he lets you throw us in there, it's okay. Be it known, we will not bow down and worship your image. Nebuchadnezzar's enraged. He commands the strongest in his army to bind them. He commands the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it was wont to be heated. Get it as hot as it'll go. It's so hot that the men, the strongest of his men that were assigned to cast them in are consumed with the open flames and they perish. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're cast into that fire, Nebuchadnezzar looks in. I think it's interesting what words the Lord allows in his word, to be put into the mouths of the ungodly. The prophet Balaam is a remarkable example of that in the Old Testament. A false prophet, powerful, Christ-centered, messianic predictions. But here's Nebuchadnezzar. And he stands in amazement and he says, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? I see four. I see four. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. You know, God can get glory to himself without us. 
He can get glory to himself without a strong church. But he's pleased at times even to use a few. One. Like Daniel later. That are valiant for truth. Nobody else is. Doesn't matter what you do to me. God's still God. Truth is still truth. And I'm his child. Here I am. These are four texts out of many more that could have made such a list. But here, in days when truth has fallen in the streets, let's ask the God who's promised to be present with his people to help us to be discerning and valiant. If you take your hymnals this evening, we're going to close with singing number 140. 140 at the cross. And when you found your place, if you would stand together with me as we sing.